Well, I count it a privilege to be with you this weekend. I have been blessed already this evening. I appreciate this. the songs that were led. That first song was led at our business meeting this past Wednesday at McGackiesville. And the, the last phrase of that song really struck me, and it struck me again this evening. Well, actually, the whole last verse. May Zion's good be kept in view and bless our feeble aim that all we undertake to do may glorify Thy name. And so whether we're talking about this weekend at this Bible conference or whether we're talking about building the church every day of our life, I, I, I just there's a sense in which I feel like I just have to say, God bless our feeble aim. There's, there's so, I think Philip mentioned in his prayer about our, our frail and who we, who we are in spite of the, or in light of the job that we've been given. And so God bless our feeble aim and may all we undertake to do bring glory to his name. We're looking at a subject this weekend that is very near and dear to my heart, the church and building the church. And yet it's a subject that I feel very unfit and very unworthy to approach. And so I stand before you as simply an unworthy servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell hell shall not prevail against it. And so I rest in the promise that it's he who will build the church. Jesus will build his church. He, He promised that. And His church that He will build will not just be a church that survives. The church that Jesus built will thrive. He says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan's going to put up gates to try to stop the church of Jesus from moving forward. But if we are truly who God wants us to be, truly the church that God desires for us to be, we're going to plow through those gates and move on and be what God wants us to be. But Jesus also said, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And I don't profess to know exactly what all that means, but it seems that that Jesus is saying or or is, is entrusting a certain responsibility and a certain authority even to us to build his church. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so we tremble with that responsibility. And it's one that we should never take lightly. So as Philip mentioned, the theme for the weekend is building the local body. And I suspect that all of you here who are a part of the local body have a desire to build the local body. And so I first want to consider that title this evening, building the local body, and just point out a few things. Number one, we're talking about the local body. And more specifically this weekend, we're talking about this church, Mabel Memorial Chapel. Now the main theme of Jesus' teaching while He was here on this earth was the kingdom of God. He spoke of the kingdom of God many, many times as He was on this earth. And most times, not all, not every time, but most times when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, He was not talking about something in the future. Or, or okay, He was, but not something that's still in the future. He was talking about something that was going to be coming soon. Something that was coming just down the road. And I don't profess this evening to have a complete understanding of the kingdom of God, but as I understand it, 
the kingdom of God that Jesus talks so much about is the church. Now, you could say that the kingdom of God is not the local church, but rather it's the universal church, and that would probably be correct. But the truth of the matter is the reality of the universal church is lived out in the local body. Okay, I'll say that again. The reality of the universal church is lived out in the local body. And so let's not fool ourselves into believing the lie of the devil that says, I can be at odds with my local church. I can be a half-hearted, casual, couldn't care less, frustrated member of my local church, and yet God is just so happy to have me as a part of the universal church. Okay, that's a lie of the devil. Val Yoder said, if I can't get excited about my local church, then my excitement about some mystical, universal church is pharisaical. So I trust that you are excited this evening about building the local body because you are a part of the kingdom of God. And that is lived out in the local body. Alright, so we're talking about building the local body. We're not talking about the building. Several years ago, I was here in this building and the floors were stripped down and the benches were out and, and stuff was a mess. Somebody's, somebody's done some work. Somebody's been building the church, right? But that's not what we're talking about. And really, we're not even necessarily talking about filling our pews. Now, that could be included. But there's many, many books written on building the church. And many of them are focused on filling, filling the pews. But this weekend, that's not really what we're talking about. Rather, we're talking about growing more and more, both individually and collectively, into what God desires for us to be. Now, it's my belief that the purpose of the church is threefold. And you could, thank you, you could probably add to this, but I think the purpose of the church could be summed up in these three statements. It's to glorify God, it's to perfect the saints, and it's to warn the sinner. Now, we could have made these three things the topics for this weekend, and we didn't do that. We, we chose to go a different route. But it's my desire that the result of these messages this weekend will be these three things. That we glorify God, that we perfect the saints, and that we warn the sinner. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I want to read a few verses out of Colossians 1 at the beginning here to establish something that I believe is of utmost importance and that we keep in the forefront of our minds this weekend as we approach this subject. Colossians 1, I want to read verses 12 through 14. Colossians 1 verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, all of us who are born-again believers can identify with these verses. We were lost. We were helpless. We couldn't save ourselves. But we've been delivered. We've been redeemed. We've been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now I want to read verses 15 through 20 
and 15 through 20 exalts the Son. And as I read this, Jesus, the name of Jesus is not mentioned, but rather He's mentioned as He and Him, words like that. And so I'm going to substitute those pronouns for Jesus as I read this. So verse 15, Who, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and by Jesus all things consist. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things Jesus might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Jesus should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of Jesus' cross, by Jesus to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Jesus, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And I'm going to stop there. And so you notice in these verses the emphasis on Jesus. It's all through these verses. And I want to zero in just quickly on verse 18. And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the firstborn, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Now the, the word preeminence there means to be first or to be the highest rank. Jesus must have the preeminence in our life and in our church. It's Jesus. It's His church. It's not our church. It's, it's His church. He is the Savior. He is our Lord. We must do it His way, by Him, and for Him. He must have the preeminence. And so it is my desire this weekend that Jesus would be exalted. And I'm sure that all of you here, along with myself, have opinions and ideals of what the church should look like. And that's okay. I, I, I think that's okay. But it's very possible to allow my opinions and my ideals to distract me from building His body. And suddenly I become in focus and not Jesus. And so, as I share this weekend, some of my opinions may come out. And forgive me for that. But please... Keep Jesus in the forefront of this message. It's His church. And may He have the preeminence. And so, I do not desire this weekend to indoctrinate you with my opinions, but rather to inspire us from Scripture to evaluate God's plan and purpose for His church. So the title of the message this evening is A Spirit-Filled and Unified Church. And how many of you would like for your church to be Spirit-Filled and Unified? Yeah, I trust that we all do. Now, this may appear to be two different subjects, but the reality is, if one is the reality, the other will be a result. If we are a Spirit-filled church, we will be a unified church. Tonight, we're going to be focusing primarily on the individual. Each of us individually must be who God wants us to be if we are going to build the church. Yes, there are responsibilities that we have as a group. 
But tonight we're going to be looking at us as individuals. Turn now to the book of Acts. These first two messages are taken primarily from the book of Acts. I like reading about the early church. Some people think that it's maybe uh, out of our reach and and it was for a certain time period and and all that stuff. And, And some of that is true. I don't think that we need to emulate exactly what happened here, but yet there are some very important principles that we need to follow from the book of Acts in building our church today in 2021. So I want to begin by reading Acts 1, verses 1 through 9. The former treatises have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which He was taken up, after that He, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou... At this time, restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now we, be, we believe that the book of Acts was written by Luke. And this is the second book that Luke wrote. And he, he refers to that in the first verse. In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke had already written a book about all that Jesus did while he was here on earth. For three years, Jesus was with His disciples. He was there. He was with them. They could talk to Him. They they saw Him. They they could put their arm around Him. They heard His teaching. He mentored them. He he, He showed them both by His teaching and by His life how they were to live. For three years, Jesus was with them. Then He died. Then He resurrected. And then there was 40 days where Jesus came and went, but He was alive. And it says here in Acts that in those 40 days between His resurrection and ascension, it says that Jesus spoke to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so again, I already talked about the kingdom of God, but but this is not something far off in the future. This is now a present reality. Jesus was talking to them about something that was getting ready to happen. He was teaching them about this. And I... My understanding is that that this was established here in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And if if you feel different, we can talk about that afterwards. But that's my understanding of of the kingdom of God here that that Jesus was talking about. But notice what Jesus said in verse 4. He said, wait for the promise of the Father. 
And so I want you to understand this point. For three years, Jesus was with His people, with His disciples. He was there. He was with them. Then He left. He ascended into heaven. But before He went, He told them, well, He told them before He died that that the Comforter was going to come. The Holy Ghost was going to come after He left. But He tells them here, after I leave, wait for the promise of the Father. Don't go, don't don't plunge ahead with building the kingdom until the promise of the Father has come. Now, let me ask you a question. Could we have church without the Spirit of God? A lot of heads going this way. A few of you think maybe it's a trick question. (laughs) Okay, very good. Yes, we could have a form of church. Do you think that all the churches that you passed on the way to this building tonight, do you think all of those groups of people are filled with the Spirit of God? Uh, I'm not going to say because I'm not the judge, okay? Um, But it's possible they're not. We could fix up an old church building and call it Mabel Memorial Chapel, and we could come here Sunday after Sunday without the Spirit of God. We could do that. We could have an ordination without the Spirit of God. We could, we could select a few people and we could get some books and st- stick them up here with a piece of paper in one of them and, and these brothers could pick one and, and it, it would be in one of their books and we'd pray over them and they'd be our preacher. We could do that without the Spirit of God. That's very possible. And we could, we could show up Sunday after Sunday and go through the motions without the Spirit of God. But God forbid... The, the reality that this is a possibility is very sobering to me. God forbid that we do church without the Spirit of God. If we are going to truly build the local church, it must be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we are nothing more than a social club. Jesus said in verse 8, you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So I was with you. You didn't need the Holy Ghost then. The Holy Ghost is going to come and you're going to have power. But between that period, and I think it was about a 10-day period where Jesus had left and the Holy Ghost hadn't came, Jesus said, wait. Just wait. And so, again, the point I want you to get is this. Well, actually, maybe I'll I'll elaborate just briefly on verse 8. Jesus said, "You, you will receive power. And that word power... Is, is the word, the, the Greek word is the word we get our word dynamite from. Now, you may not understand everything Jesus meant when he said power, but you know what I mean when I say dynamite. Okay, it's something that's so powerful that the authorities have had to regulate it. And, and I'm guessing probably none of y'all can go out and buy dynamite. Anybody here buy dynamite? Probably not. You've got to have permits and, and, and you've got to be certified to use dynamite. You will receive dynamite after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You're going to shake things up. You're going to, you're going to impact the world after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And in, in Acts 2, we see that, that that happened after the Holy Ghost came upon them. But the point I want you to understand is that it's entirely possible to go through the motions of church without the Spirit of God, but it is impossible 
to truly and effectively build the church without the Spirit of God. Now, Jesus said, wait for the promise of the Father. And so I want to talk a little bit about the promise of the Father. We've already referenced what that is. It's the Holy, the Holy Ghost. And Jesus talks about that extensively in, in John chapters 14 through 16. And you don't have to turn to that for the sake of time. I'm, I'm not going to read all those verses, but I'm just going to go through those chapters and tell you what Jesus said about the, the comforter that was going to come, the Holy Ghost, what, what he would be, what he was going to do. And this is all taken out of John 14 through 16. So Jesus said that when the Spirit, well, first he said that the Spirit is given to those who love God and keep his commandments. The Spirit is given to those who love God and keep his commandments. That's the first thing. The second thing, the Spirit will abide with us forever. Now that's important, okay? In the Old Testament, there was prophets. They, they spoke God's word and they came and went. That the Spirit would be with us forever. Jesus, the Son of God, was here for three years and then He left. That the Spirit would be with us forever. Okay, number three. The Spirit is an ever-present God for the Christians. An ever-present God. Again, uh, think about the, the importance of this stuff. Jesus was not an ever-present God. There was times the disciples went looking for Jesus. He was not there. But the Spirit is an ever-present God. As believers, He is with us when we wake up in the middle of the night. He is with us when we meet a stranger on the street. He is with us all the time. He's an ever-present God. Okay, number four, the Spirit will teach us and guide us into all truth. And again, this is all things that Jesus told His disciples about the Spirit. The Spirit will teach us and guide us into all truth. Number five, the Spirit will testify of the Son. And that's important as well because some people think that the Spirit comes and says, here I am. Look at me. This man has the Spirit. See him? But no, that's not what Jesus said. He said, the Spirit will testify of me. The Spirit does not speak of Himself. And then sixth thing Jesus said, is the Spirit will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So these are all realities of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. Ray Pritchard, and I don't know who that is, but Ray Pritchard said this, It was the coming of the Holy Spirit that transformed Peter, the denier, into Peter, the preacher. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit that took Thomas the doubter and turned him into Thomas, the missionary. It was the coming of, the, of God's mighty Holy Spirit which took those cowardly, fearful, doubting, hesitant disciples and made them flaming evangelists for Jesus Christ who were ready to lay down their lives for Him. It was that and nothing else. It was the work of the Holy Spirit coming into ordinary men and women who transformed them from ordinary men and women into evangelists for Jesus Christ. Amen, Ray Pritchard. And so if we're going to be a church that accomplishes anything for the kingdom of God, we must be a group of spirit-filled believers. We must be. Okay, so that is a very brief description of the promise of the Father that is referred to in, in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. So now I want to go to Acts 2, where we have the promise of the Father coming 
to fruition. And I want to read verses 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the beautiful account of the Spirit of God being poured out on the believers at Pentecost. And there's there's so many things that we could we could look at in relation to this, but I want to keep on our subject this evening, which is building the local body. And and the the point I want you to get the get here, and I told you at the at the beginning that the message this evening is about us as individuals. And and what I want you to get here is that when the Spirit came, the Spirit was not poured out on the group. The Spirit was poured out on individuals. Now they were a group, but the Spirit came on the individuals. There was cloven tongues like as a fire that sat upon each of them. There was not one big flame that came and sat under the group, and anybody that saw it could come rushing in and get under this flame and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not how it worked. This group that was together with one accord, waiting for the promise of the Father, received the Holy Spirit. And it came upon them as individuals. And so, I would like to suggest to you that the church, the local body, is not a spirit-filled body, but rather it is a body that is made up of spirit-filled members. We are a body made up of spirit-filled members. I take responsibility for my relationship with God. Now, we work together as a body. That's part of the purpose of the church, to perfect the saints. But just because I'm on the church roll, just because I'm a faithful member or a faithful attendee, does not make me a spirit-filled believer. I must be responsible for my relationship with God. I must have the indwelling presence of God in my life if I'm going to be a part of building the local body. So often, people fuss at the local body for its lack of spirituality and its lack of fervor and its lack of zeal. And yes, I probably have been one of them. And yes, the church has its share of problems. But oftentimes, listen to this, oftentimes the people who fuss the loudest are the ones that have the most problems. Now, preachers, don't nod your head in agreement, all right? (laughs) Gary Miller wrote this, I suspect that many who see flaws, spiritual deadness, and lack of vibrancy in their local churches are correct in their assessment. These problems do exist. But these issues can also blind us to our own deficiencies. I can easily hide my love for the world behind faults I discover in my church. I can easily hide my love for the world behind faults I discover in my church. Uh, 
several years ago, I related to a young man fairly closely. And this young man was a, was a good young man. He was a good church member. He liked to talk about spiritual things. He was a thinker. He, he, you would have known him as, as, a, as, a good, as a good brother. But this young man seemed to be frustrated with church. And he, he always had gripes with his church. And, and you know, the, the leaders weren't leading like they should. And, and the preaching was boring. And, and they were legalistic and on and on. He always had these little gripes with the church. But at some point, this brother confessed to me that there was sin in his life. And it was a specific sin that he mentioned that was in his life. And he, he, he repented of that sin. And we praise God for that. But it wasn't long and, and, and he, was, he was fussing more and he was griping more about his church. And then I found out that, that there was another area in his life that wasn't right with God. And, and he, he got that worked out and, and, and he continued to gripe about his church. And then there was something else that came up. And, and, and it seemed like this pattern continued. And finally, I started realizing something as I, as I started to put the pieces together. And, and finally, I just told him. I don't remember the exact words I told him. But basically, I said, look, you keep fussing about the church. You keep fussing about the leaders and the way things are. But there's sin in your life. And, and you keep, you're, you're, you're not having personal victory. And you keep trying to get, get victory one thing at a time. And you get this area right in your life. And then you get this area right. And, and I said, man, I'm starting to think you have a problem. Take up your cross. Lay it down. Surrender everything. It's not the church's problem. I think that you're trying to hide your sin behind the, the, the faults that you see in the church. You need to die, man. You need to surrender. Lay it down. And so often we do this. We find 101 things wrong with the church and we ignore the sin and the complacency in our own life. No, the church isn't perfect, but usually the church isn't the problem. Oftentimes, it's our own problem. Now, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? I want to go to Acts 2, verses 37 through 39. After the, the crowds had saw these spirit-filled believers, these men that, that, that had these cloven tongues of fire and, and they were speaking in other tongues and they saw what was going on. Then Peter stands up and he preaches a message and the people were pricked in their heart and they said, what must we do? Acts 2, verse 37. Peter said this. Now, <clears throat> actually this is uh, preceding what Peter said. Now when they heard this, when they heard Peter's preaching, they were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. <clears throat> How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Each of us individually must come before God, recognize our sinfulness, 
recognize that there's no way to save ourselves. I, I don't know, but I suspect that some of these people in this crowd were ones that stood there in that crowd and hollered, crucify him, crucify him. They shook their fist at Jesus. They hollered and screamed and, and, and cheered when he hung on the cross. It's very possible. In fact, I think Peter talks about that in his sermon. And suddenly they saw themselves for who they were. They realized what they had done to Jesus. They realized that there was no way they could be right with God. And they said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This tremendous reality of God in us. This was available even to those men who said, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Now, I talked earlier about the disciples waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And there are people today who wait for the Holy Spirit. They sit around waiting for the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes what they're waiting for is an experience. They want this this cloven tongues of fire. They want the speaking in tongues and all that stuff. But Peter doesn't tell these people, wait for an experience. He says, repent. Repent. And be baptized, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> now I want to read verses 40 through 42. And the point we just made is that, that the Spirit fills individuals who repent and believe in Jesus. Now, Acts 2, verse 40. And what we see in these verses is that Spirit filled individuals will form a community. Spirit-filled individuals will form a community. Verse 40, And with many other words did he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And we're going to look more at those, the rest of that passage tomorrow morning. But what I want you to notice here is that the, commu- the community that was formed around these Spirit-filled individuals. And notice, the, there was actually two communities. And they're very distinct. The first one is in verse 40, where Peter says, save yourself from this untoward generation. That was the first community. Save yourself from that. And in verse 41, they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them, about 3,000 souls. So two groups of people, this untoward generation and the church. Peter says, come out of this one and join this one. And so these spirit-filled individuals formed a community. And it talks more about that community in the rest of the chapter. And we'll look at that more tomorrow. But the point I want you to understand is that as spirit-filled individuals, we should have a desire to be a part of a community. That should be a desire in our heart. 
Jesus didn't save us to be on an island somewhere by ourselves, serving Him by ourselves. He wants us to be a part of a community of believers. That's His desire. And so now, with that in mind, I want to go to the second part of the title, Spirit-Filled and Unified. Now we're getting into this community. The definition of unified is the state of being in full agreement. Do you believe that Jesus wants His church to be unified? Do you believe that? I hope you do. Turn to John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer before He was crucified. And in this prayer, He prays for us. He prays for us today. And here's what He says, praying to the Father for us. This is John 17, starting with verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word, that they all may be one, as Thou, Father, art in Me, and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And the glory which Thou gavest Me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and Thou in Me, that they may be made perfect and one, and that the world may know that Thou hast sent Me, and has loved them as Thou hast loved Me. So the heart cry of Jesus in this prayer for you and I is that we would be one. He says it, I believe, uh, three, uh, four times, I think, that they may be one. And he doesn't just say get along, but he says that they may be one even as we are one. He's praying to the Father, even as Father, even as you and I are one. Let them be one like that. Now, what's the relationship of Jesus with His Father? It was one that said, Not my will, but thine be done. It was one that said, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And then Jesus said, Let them be one as we are one. Jesus desires for His followers, for us, to have this kind of unity with each other. The same kind of unity that He had with His Father. Do we strive for this level of unity in our church today? I fear that way too often we settle for an I'll put up with you. I'll try to put up with you mentality. Or maybe a mentality that says we'll get along fine, but we need to keep some distance between us. Or we get along, but there's always going to be a wall between us. But that's not what Jesus prayed for. He said, let them be one, even as I and my Father are one. Jesus longs for His people to have a submissive, a looking out for the good of others, a preferring others over yourself, a look not every man on his own need, but every man also on the needs of others kind of unity. That's what Jesus desires for His church. Let them be one as we are one. Now, why does Jesus want us to be unified in this way? Well, He tells us that the world may know that Thou hast sent Me. Jesus longs for the world to come to an understanding of who He is. He wants the world to see His glory. And He has chosen to use us as a church to point the world to Him. Do we take that seriously? Does that sober us? It should be sobering to us. 
we show the world who Jesus is largely by our love for each other. As we read about the early church, we very quickly see that there was unity among these people. I'm just going to read several phrases. This is from the beginning of Acts. Acts 1.14, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Acts 2.1, They were all with one accord in one place. Acts 2.44, All who believed were together and had all things in common. Acts 2.46, They continued daily with one accord in the temple. Acts 4.24, They lifted up their voice with one accord. Acts 4.32, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. And Acts 5.12, they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Do you think they were unified? I think they were unified. And we're going to see tomorrow that they weren't unified. Actually, no, I think we're going to see it today yet. They weren't unified because they all were alike. Okay, they were unified because they all had the Spirit of God dwelling in them. So how do we achieve this kind of unity? I already told you just now. How do we achieve this unity? I want to go to Philippians 2 to answer this question. There's actually several passages we could go to, but I want to go to Philippians 2. How do we achieve this kind of unity? Is it by all enjoying the same thing? Is it by us all having the same background? being from the same culture, speaking the same language, having the same hobbies. Is that what unifies us? How do we achieve this kind of unity? Philippians 2, verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bows and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, listen to this, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then he says, verse 5, how do we achieve this unity? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And... If, if you're a Bible scholar, you know the verses that follow. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And, and it goes on. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's how we achieve this unity. The church is unified not because we share the last name or the same occupation or the same hobbies, but rather a truly unified church is one where all the members are perfectly joined together in the same mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ. And how do we get that mind? It's the Spirit of God. It's Christ in us. The Spirit of God is Christ in us. Christ indwelling presence, guiding us, leading us, directing us every step. That's that's a Spirit-filled believer. Christ in you. And that's what unifies us. A truly unified church is one where all the members are perfectly joined together in the same mind, and that mind is the mind of Christ. Similar thought in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, where Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, 
and that there be no divisions among you, that's unity, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And again, what, what's that mind? It's the mind of Christ. It's God, Christ in us. A.W. Tozer, we like to quote him, A.W. Tozer wrote this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are, near, are, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. You get that? We can make all kinds of rules to, to unite us. We can, we can do that. We can come up with programs to unite us. And we can try to be unified. And we can have conferences on how to be unified. But unless we're looking to Christ, and we have the mind of Christ, we'll never achieve true unity. We may achieve uniformity, but not unity. I want to close this evening with a few verses out of Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as many... For as, we have, for as we have many members in one body, and all, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every member one of another. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul speaks of a unified body. <clears throat> but he prefaced that by speaking to the individual. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. I want to, well, let me say this. A beautiful, unified, vibrant church begins with each of us as individuals being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I want to talk about that word transformed. And you've probably already heard this, but it's worth repeating. The Greek word that is translated transformed is the word we get our word metamorphosis from. And you understand that process where a tadpole becomes a frog or a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Caterpillars actually do become butterflies. They don't just become like butterflies. They become butterflies. There is a actual visible change. And when you take a caterpillar and when you take a butterfly, there's almost no resemblance. 
they've been transformed. They've been changed. And this is a beautiful example of what a transformed mind is like. What is now is not even close to what was. When we accept God's gift of salvation in our life, we are filled with the Spirit of God and we are transformed. We become new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And if we all could be transformed and be filled with the Spirit of God, we would have a beautiful, vibrant, unified church. And so I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. That's our reasonable service. Now I want to give you a homework assignment for tomorrow morning. <clears throat> I want you to think about this scenario. If you were to give a Bible to a village that had never seen one before, and they would take the Bible and they would form a community based on the principles that they find therein. What are some things that you would find in that community when you would return in five years? I want you to think about that. If you would, take a, if you would go to a community that's never seen a Bible and you would give them a Bible, and they would take that Bible and they would open it up and they would read it, and they would form a community based on the principles they find in that book. What are some things that you would find in five years? <clears throat>